Let's go to uh, the Word of God this morning, and I want you to turn in your Bibles. If you brought your Bible with you, turn in the book, uh, to the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, as I've been going through the book of Hebrews, and we are today in chapter 12 in verses 14 through 17, uh, Hebrews 12, 14 through 17. And I would like to share with you uh, the life of a salmon, the life of a salmon, because it really, uh, I read something about salmon that really spoke to me, and, it, and I think it really, really directly uh, uh, goes into the passage that we're going to be talking about this morning. Now, I didn't write this summary of a salmon's life, but I thought it was really good. You probably know this, but I'm going to share it with you now. The life of a salmon is very interesting. From the freshwater rivers, they go through their normal life cycle as eggs and fingerlings and eventually live in the sea. But once they reach maturity, they have an absolute determination to go back to their spawning grounds. The trip back to their spawning grounds is a seemingly impossible task full of dangers, traps, and obstacles as they will be swimming against the overbearing current of the rivers. Many of the salmon die going back to their grounds. Bears and birds of prey catch them and eat them. Some of them may get caught up on the rocks, logs, and other obstacles along the way and die. Sometimes they have to swim through shallow waters just to get through their journey, but they never stop or rest from swimming against the current. Otherwise, it would carry them away from their destination. The incredible thing is, in order for them to reach their spawning grounds, they have to jump upstream, up a waterfall, sometimes more than once in their journey. Many of their jumps fail, but they persist until they get through the waterfall or die trying. Against all odds, many of them eventually reach their spawning grounds, and a new generation of salmon eggs are laid and later hatched to become fingerlings. You can probably count yourself lucky not to be a salmon. <laughs> the Christian life of ours is like the salmon trek. It may seem like the odds are stacked heavily against you. Laws are passed that create a very strong current that seems almost impossible to fight against. Opposition stand like bears and birds just waiting for you to jump. Wickedness, immorality, disrespect, hatefulness, ungodliness is ever so blatant. Society and lawmakers are trying to make the acceptance and practice of ungodly values and activities pervade the world we live in. Who would have thought four, five, ten years ago the things that we read about morally and spiritually in our nation would actually be happening. It's almost beyond the imagination. But, the writer says, um, we must be like the salmon and uh, determine that we're going to continue to run the race well until the end. Isn't that true, though? Can you see the parallels between a salmon and a Christian? We're swimming upstream, aren't we? You know, we're not swimming with the current. We're swimming upstream in the, in the, in the uh, culture and world that we live in. E almost more every day. It's just mind-boggling the, the slide that we're in. The current gets harder and harder because the world is getting less and less Christ-like. We're like salmon swimming upstream against our culture, but more than just our culture, against the devil himself, against the world. And he's the God of this world. And against, even against ourselves in a sense because we still have that mortal flesh with that principle of sin in us and we have that battle, spirit against flesh and flesh against spirit. So we are really like salmon going upstream, okay? But we're going to give it everything we got, aren't we? And we're going to give it everything we got because we want to end up hearing, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We want to give it everything we've got going upstream against the current to reach our ultimate destination, which is this, fellowship and approval with God in heaven for all of eternity. Okay? Now, what does that have to do with the four verses that we're going to look at today? I believe that all through the book of Hebrews, Paul has been, or whoever you think wrote the book, because uh, we don't know if for sure if it was Paul, but I think the writer wedges in all through the book uh, a challenge to these weary Christians in Italy, uh, they, a challenge is to keep going, keep persevering, keep continuing, don't stop. And that's a challenge to you today, to me. 
in our world that just looks so nuts right now. Uh, God is saying through many of these, these little sections, persevere, keep going, continue until you finish the race. Now, last week we talked about the, the, the blessing of divine discipline. Next week we're going to talk about the difference between the new and the old covenant. But he wedges these four verses in there as challenges to us so that we're, we are going to be like those salmon and not stop until we reach our goal. Now, I want to read the passage, and then we'll get into it and see what it, what it is that he tells us to do or not to do to keep us going on this journey until we get to the end. Uh, verse 14 of chapter 12. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that uh, no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Four verses wedged in between other verses, other themes, ch challenging us to keep going to the, what do we got to do? That's the, it will answer the question, how, what do we do to continue to run the race well as we swim against the current of our culture, our world, our enemy, and even the flesh, the principle of sin in our flesh? Number one, the writer says, make every effort to live in peace with all men. Make every effort to live in peace with all men. Now, God wants us to do this. He wants us to make it a priority for us here right now to be at peace with each other. Okay, make every effort. That's a strong word. It means to persecute. It means to, to go after. It means if you're a hunter, you're tracking down your prey. You're going through the woods, up hills, down deep into valleys, and whatever, you, you're tracking your prey. You're, you're doing this aggressively. What are you doing aggressively? To make every effort to live in peace with all men. Okay? It, it implies concentrated effort to be at peace with all men. Not just some men, but how many men? All men. All men. Now, I think it, it can mean our nuclear family. It can mean the church, and I think primarily it does mean the church. It can mean anybody, anybody outside our families and churches. But I think it's primarily in the church. But here's what the writer is saying. Uh, when someone in our family or in our church or wherever hurts us, we don't withdraw. We don't lick our wounds. We don't nurse our hurt feelings. We don't take our cookies and go home and form grudges and cocoon ourselves so that we're protected and it never happens again. But we take the initiative. We take the initiative to pursue peace with all men. You know, you got to be spiritually strong to do that. That's, that's raising the bar really high. Because most people, when they've been in conflict or they're at odds with someone, they just say, you know, I'm, uh, I'm going to leave it alone. Uh, I'd really, uh, I don't want to expend the energy and, the, and, the, and, the, and it's uncomfortable and I'm not, uh, uh, uh. and they just, they never are at peace with the people that, they're, uh, that they've offended or have offended them, okay? And uh, Romans 12, 18 tells us and 1419, tell us um, what we do in this church and in our families and amongst the people that we live and work with. It says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on the other person. Oh, I'm sorry. That was the reverse vision, not the revised version. I'm sorry. Um, as far as it depends on you. On you, live at peace with everyone. And it goes on to say, do not take revenge, for if the Lord says vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And also 1419 says it very clearly. Let us, therefore, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. It's not up to the other guy. It's up to you and me to go and make peace. You say, with who? Well, with that person that has hurt me. And we'll talk more about that later. Uh, but also the person I have hurt. We go and we, we, we you know, uh, put on our big boy pants 
And we go to that person, and we aggressively hunt, track down peace with that person. Have you done that? Have you? Have you? Have you made an effort to pursue peace with those who hurt you? Or maybe the Holy Spirit's telling you that you hurt them. It doesn't matter. It's all about your particular situation. But have you gone to them in humility? Has, have you asked them if you did something to cause offense or, uh, or say, you know, I feel offended? Only go if God's leading you. Don't go if he's not. But if he's led you to go to that person who has hurt you and ask them, can we get this cleared up? Because I don't want anything between us. I want to live in peace with you. And that means living in peace with someone doesn't mean that you do not, uh, you know, key their car after church. Uh, living in peace with someone doesn't mean that you sit on one side and they sit on the other. Living in peace means the absence of conflict and the presence of love. The absence of conflict and the presence of love. Anything short of that is not living in peace with someone. And again, it says, with all men. All men. All men. Or women, you know. All men. Fellow Christians who may have wronged us, or maybe we have wronged. But all men. It includes wives to husbands and husbands to wives. That includes parents to kids and kids to parents. That includes people with different views in the church. There are very, 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 there are very, very, very few issues in the church that should divide the church. Very, very few. I've narrowed it down to very, very few, okay, over the years. When I was young, there was a lot more things that I would wave a flag for. Now that I'm older, I can't even pick up the flag. So, you know, I don't even, I don't even wave that flag. But I've learned that it's, there's not as much to be differ on in churches like ours than we think there are. Are you with me? Amen. It's just not. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Okay? And so remember, um, Satan wants us to be with odds with one another. But if we're going to get there, like that salmon, getting to the f final point, we've got to be at peace with all men. Let's go to the second one here. Second one is here, not only do we need to be at peace with all men, but we need to make every effort to be holy. To be holy. For without holiness, no one will seek the Lord. Now, I wrote this down. First thing I want to say, being holy should be on our minds all the time. All the time. You say, man, I can't do that. No, I can't either. But that should be our goal. That when we, when we put our foot on the, on the floor in the morning when we're getting out of bed and when we, when we hit the pillow at night, our, our, our one, if not our highest priority should be to be holy because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Ooh, that's, what does that mean? I'm gonna tell you. First, I wanna talk about what it means to be holy, to make every effort with, obviously with God's help and knowing that we'll never be perfect this side of heaven, but with God's help, and knowing we'll never be perfect inside of heaven, do everything we can to be morally and spiritually pure. Oh, pure. And you know what that means? That means to be the opposite of this world. I think, personally, that the world's getting more impure. Anybody want to argue with me on that? It's amazing. And, and you know what? I think all of us in different stages of seeing this, maybe over the last, I'm just going to say... 40, 50 years, 30, 40, 50 years. We thought it was going to stop. We thought, okay, this, it can't get any farther than this. No one would dare to put that on TV or this on TV. No one would dare to have a magazine like that. No one, no one would dare to, put, to try to make a law like that. And it just keeps getting worse. And as Christians, we have to, throughout our days, think about to make every effort there to be holy, to be holy, to be morally pure. And you know what, guys? To be morally pure is so much less of a hassle than to be morally incorrupt. It's just less of a hassle. And, it's, and we're a lot happier, too, because we're in line with what God wants us to do. Uh, the world makes holiness, you know, you, they make you think you're 
look like a Puritan with buckles on your shoes and that goofy hat and, 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 and that, you know, you speak like this, thou art looking fine, thou wife of, of mine this morning or something. You know, talking funny. That's not holiness. Holiness is God coming out of our lives. And that's fun. There's so much less hassle. And we're, 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 to, we're, to, we're to make every effort, because that passes through this, to be holy. And, and, and that's, again, by God, the holy power of the Holy Spirit, and, uh, and, and it doesn't mean perfection, because I think that's unrealistic. Uh, but it means that we ought to live righteously because we're righteous children of God. We ought to follow our God. Just follow our God. First uh, Peter tells us that in chapter 1, very clearly, and I'm going to just, well, it's actually a, a few verses here. Therefore, verse 13, 1 Peter 1, 13, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Okay? And a lot of us can understand that. Because we didn't, I wasn't saved as a, as a, at a young age, and I had a lot of evil desires, and I still do. But just as he who called you ho is holy, so be holy in all you do. All you do. That's our, that's the bar. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. We're to follow our leader. We're to follow our leader and to be holy. Now, there are two, more than one interpretation of what that means. Okay? When it says, uh, for without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But holiness is, holiness is what we're called to as Christians. But what does that mean, without holiness, no one will see the Lord? Well, it's really two, you could go two ways. I, go, I, I like the second way, I'm going to say, but the first way, I've heard some pretty godly guys say it. First way is, if there's no holiness in our lives, if we're not living like God would want us to live morally, spiritually, uh, uh, following our leader and, and, doing, and, and, and turning away from sin and the flesh and the devil and the world and turning to God and letting the Holy Spirit produce his fruit in our life, if we're doing that because without ho holiness no one will see the Lord, it's that who's going to see Jesus in our lives? Who's going to see him? Is our neighbor going to see Jesus? Is our, is our spouse going to see Jesus? Our kids? Our parents? I, my parents were unsaved. Did they see the... Did they see holiness coming out of my life? I mean, uh, that your friend, that you, you have a friend that's not a believer or a neighbor or uh, whatever, you know, workmate. Uh, without ho your holiness, you, you might be the only person that, that they might see Christ through if you're not living a holy life. And so that might be what this writer is talking about now, the second thing that he might, the second interpretation is without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And what this means is this, and I've had people fight me on this, argue with me on this, and, you know, I, it says America, you have every right to be wrong, you know, if they don't want to agree with me, that's fine. But uh, I hope you understand my sarcastic uh, <laughs> sense of humor, because I do that, those of you that know me. Um, it means that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. In other words, if there's no desire to be like our, our Father and, our, and the Son, then are we going to go to heaven? Now, let me make it real clear. We don't earn our way to heaven. There aren't enough good works in us to earn our way to heaven. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? But if I don't desire, if, I, if there's not something in me that says that hungers to be like God, right? That says, and when I sin, we just go, ah, yuck, I did that again. Oh, Holy Father, forgive me for once again in that area with my mouth, with my thoughts, with my attitudes. Uh, oh, forgive me, Father. Oh, Holy Spirit, I'm so sorry for grieving you once again for the 10,000th time. And your heart aches and you say, oh, Father, conform me to the image of Christ. Help me, help me to be a holy, holy person. I so, so want to walk in the Spirit. I, I want to bring you glory. Okay, you see what I'm saying? 
If that's not there in, in some measure, whether it's that measure or that measure, I would doubt that you are a saved person. Now, we're not grading people here. We're, we're, we're not going on a witch hunt or anything like that, but the bottom line is, is that everyone who's been saved wants to please the Lord. I mean, you can't, you can't say, well, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, and, 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 and just not care. I'm not saying we don't struggle and fall and face plant spiritually, and I'm not saying there isn't an internal struggle, but we want to be holy. The righteous in Christ will attempt to live righteously for Christ. Okay? If there's been no change in behavior and desire, there's been no change of nature inside. Without that holiness, no one's going to see the Lord. Now, I'll let you decide what that, either one or both, is yours, but we need to make every effort to be holy because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Number three, okay? To continue to do what we need to finish the race well, we need to see it that no one misses the grace of God. We need to see it that no one misses the grace of God. Verse 15, Go back to Hebrews here. Verse 15, uh, Hebrews 12. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. What's that mean? Well, now the word see to it is an interesting word. It's the Greek word episkopos. And it means overseer or bishop or it's synonymous with elder. And it's not talking about that kind of eldership in 1 Timothy three or any of that, which um, it's mainly, a form of that is mainly used. It's talking about being an elder over, an overseer over whether or not no one, you miss the grace of God or not. And whether your brothers in Christ in the church are missing the grace of God. It means to continue to look after or t- pay attention to that no one misses or the word means, misses means, come short or be too late or be left out. Not just ourselves. Mitch, am I missing the grace of God? But, but John and Jane Doe in our, my, this church family, are you guys missing the grace of God? In other words, practice some sanctified meddling in each other's lives. Practice sanctified meddling in each other's lives and ask our brothers and sisters, um, are you missing the grace of God? Now, what's the grace of God here? You know, I don't do very many original things. I beg, borrow, and steal for anything I can find that I think will make a better sermon for you to take out of here, I use. Whether I steal it or borrow it, and I'll tell you, you know, I, I'm generally pretty good about saying if, it's, if I'm taking it from somewhere else. But this one came originally. You know, heard about the person that said they were original? Or nothing at all, and they were both, right? So that's really true. Think about it. Okay, but this one's original. I, I think I have a good definition of the grace of God. And if I was to ask you for the Sunday school answer to the grace of God, what would you tell me? God's riches at Christ's expense. It's acrostic, but mine is better. And this is what it is. Grace is when everything comes from God and nothing comes from us. It took me years to kind of grab that. Everything, salvation or sanctification, that is Christian growth, everything comes from God, and nothing comes from us. We're just dependent on God. Okay? So me to be saved, it's all God's grace. Okay? I I didn't give a hoot about God and Jesus until he moved in my heart. Not a hoot. I was purposely moving the other direction with a vengeance. And thank God that he applied his grace to me. And, 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 and the same is true with our walk with God. It has taken me years, taken God years to pound the dickens out of me to realize that the Christian life isn't just difficult, it's what? Impossible. And the Holy Spirit says, Mitch, don't even try. 
It's not, don't try to live this Christian life. It's not difficult. It's impossible. Now, what you need to do is let Christ live the Christian life in and for and through you. Then it starts to work. Okay? But how can we miss the grace of God? Well, in terms of an unbeliever, a non-Christian, they've never really given their life to Christ. To miss the grace of God means is that in one way or another, either they don't believe in God or they think that by doing good things and being moral that they're going, and, and having their good outweigh the bad, that they're going to heaven. And a lot of, I know so many people like that. I'm a good, what? Person. I'm spiritual. Have you had that one? I'm spiritual. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? And then you get this like real gushy, mushy kind of amoeba, giant amoeba thing that's, you don't even know what it is. I'm spiritual. No, you're not good enough, nor am I. And when we think we're good enough, and we, ha- and we don't realize that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, in his work on the cross. We're missing God's grace that is all God and none of us. We accept, we receive, and, we, and repent over what Jesus did for us on the cross. We're going to do that here in a few minutes with communion. Okay, good reminder. But they live under the illusion that, that they're going to make it but they are missing the grace of God that has nothing to do with their good works. But another thing is the Christian. The Christian can miss the grace of God. It's one of the saddest things. And I I attribute it to God's mercy that by his grace, I'm not missing the grace of God. And many of you don't either. Now, what does that mean when we miss the grace of God? It means that we got saved by grace and then we went back into ourselves. And we started living the Christian life, maybe even not even knowing it, but as a system of rules and regulations and rituals and forms and systems and formulas. And we started doing it on our own. You say, well, there's nothing in the Bible about that. There's whole books in the Bible about that. The book of Galatians, the whole book is about that. Don't slip back into the law. Don't slip back into you your, your ability to be a spiritual person. Don't, don't slip back in it. Let me read this to you in the book of Galatians. It's, it's really good. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. The apostle Paul says, you foolish Galatians. You know what the Greek word is there? Believe it or not, idiotos. Literally. Check me, those of you that know Greek. I hope you don't, because I might be wrong there. But still... Uh, <laughs> No, I think it is, the, from what I remember in the Greek, it's idiotos, you stupid idiots. That's what it, you know. Who has bewitched you? Cast a spell on you. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so stupid After beginning with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, uh, giving you your salvation and and empowering you to do everything that you are to do as a Christian, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing if it is God, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? I don't, I don't want to go to a church like that. I want to go to a, a church that's, that's leaning on the Spirit. Okay? Do we miss the grace of God if we don't do that? We, we're stupid idiots. If we say, thanks, Spirit, for saving me, I'll, I'll take it from here. I did that. I did it. It's just easy to do. And sometimes that's why God lands on us so hard. He's trying to break that flesh. You say, why this? Why me? Why now? Why? Why? He's lovingly trying to crack that either legalism or self-effort so we just say, God, help. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I know whereof I speak. 
That's why I think, the, if I was to pick Paul's life verse, it would be in the book of Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20, and nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in this body, this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved and gave himself for me. I don't even live anymore. Christ lives. So we can miss the grace of God. And what are you saying? If you want to be that salmon that gets upstream, and you want to, um, and you want to get to the end well, then don't miss the grace of God. Repent of the flesh. Let's go to number four. And see to it that no bitter root grows up to cause and trouble and defile many. To continue in the race to the very end, the author says, see to it that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. In other words, prevent bitterness in ourselves and in the church. What does bitter root mean here? There's two possibilities of what bitter root means. One is, this is interesting, you'll find this interesting, is a person in the church, could be you, who is superficial. They don't totally identify with the devoted people of God. They're falling back into the world and its pollution and corruption. And by doing that, they're hurting and polluting other people in the body of Christ. They're stubborn, arrogant, sometimes rebellious to the things of the true God, and they're poisonous to the church. They've been yeah, one foot in the world and one foot in church, you know? And you think, well, can you give me chapter and verse of that? Well, I sure can. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18 says, make sure, sure there is no man or woman clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations, make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. Okay, it could mean that. Bitter poison of worldliness. One foot in the world, one foot in the church. That's a bitter root. It also could mean another meaning, and you guys know where I'm going with this, a personal root of bitterness. You've been hurt, and then your feelings of unfairness and anger uh, begin to take root and increase as a bitter poison in your life and in the life of others. Because, guys, I know this. Gosh, why did God have to teach me all this stuff? But he did. I know that a bitter root affects people around you. When I was a lot younger, uh, I had a bitter root. I had been hurt by a number of people. And I, as I look back now, uh, it affected the people around me until God brought me free, into freedom. And uh, that, that root of bitterness is powerful. And sometimes we don't want to admit that. And I, I've talked about this a lot. Isn't it interesting how this crops up in my sermons? And it's not like it went a la carte on it. You know, some pastors say, that every, you know, prophecy is a hobby horse. It's all prophecy or this is a hobby horse, or that is a hobby horse. I just preach the word. That's all I do. I let God, you know, I shoot down into a dark hole, and I let the Holy Spirit hit whoever he wants. And, 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 and bitterness is there, even in the Lord's Prayer, as I mentioned a few weeks ago. Because it's so easy to get hurt, and we've all been hurt. And if you don't resolve that, you're not going to get to the end well, because you won't be able to function well. God, the Holy Spirit can't get through that clogged pipe. I heard a story about bitterness I thought I'd share with you. Abe Lemons, if you're a sports fan, you know who this guy is. He was a head basketball coach at the University of Texas for six years. And he took a really lousy basketball program and turned it totally around. But when another uh, athletic director took over by the name of DeLos Dodds, they were starting to butt heads. They didn't get along. Well, after six seasons, even though the team was doing well, Dodds fired him, fired him. And Lemons was asked if he was bitter at the lost Dodds for firing him, and he replied, not at all. But I do plan to buy a glass-bottomed car so I can watch the look on his face when I run over him. <laughs> That's called bitterness. It's a bitter root. I got all kinds of stories here, but... I, have to, I want to get to the end of the message before uh, you get impatient with me, but that's bitterness. 
Oh, no, I'm not bitter. That was then. This is now. That's water under the bridge. And I'm a happy camper. Liar. <laughs> I was one of those people. And not all of you here have bitterness in your life. I get that. But if we're not careful, here's what can happen. We can receive the forgiveness of God, but withhold our forgiveness from someone else. We can, withhold, we can receive the forgiveness of God, but withhold that forgiveness to someone else. If we allow bitterness and resentment to take hold. I think, I think both of these, these uh, interpretations are true. You know, whatever applies to you. But let's t- talk about the bitter root here of unforgiveness. It causes trouble, it says here. Interesting. It causes trouble. We don't harbor bitterness in a vacuum. It causes trouble. It's a corruptive, corrosive influence on us, on our loved ones, and our families, our, our friends, our workmates, everybody, our neighbors. It harms especially the church, fellowship, and unity. It increases the chance for hard feelings and possible division in the church. Okay. When we're bitter, we're playing God. And you know why we're playing God? Okay, because we're taking control instead of releasing it to God. But the bitter root causes trouble, okay? And the writer here chooses to use the word root. I was reading about roots today, uh, this week, and one guy said the, system, the root system of trees can be so huge that when you put roots together, on a tr- uh, their roots together, they can be a mile or longer. A mile from one tree? Yeah, it, they just keep going. And so the writer warns us, let no root of bitterness cause trouble. We've all experienced hurt, disappointment, let down, lies, whatever you want to call them. But oftentimes we don't even realize that those roots are going a mile long. And they take hold and they cause trouble and defile many. Roots defile many. Okay? What do we mean that they defile many? Okay? Defile means... They contaminate. They contaminate or pollute or stain. They spread hard feelings, doubt, discontent, disunity, defilement, disablement. You can't, you can't serve God with a bitter heart. Not, not real effectively, you can't. It's like a slow poison, bitterness. Okay, that's what the writer's trying to say. One, one, one person likened bitterness in the life of a Christian as like moldy bread. Moldy bread. Let me, let me read to you what they said. The word defile here means uh, to contaminate. Think of it this way. Let's say you bought a loaf of bread. And we've all done this. You put it on the counter, and you forget about it for two or three weeks or a month or so. And then you find again, find it again, and you can tell something is wrong because it's changed color. What color has it turned to? Green. green. It's green. So you open the bag, make a sandwich, and walk away. No, you don't do that. <laughs> you, you throw that thing away. You get rid of it. It's contaminated now. It makes you uncomfortable to even have it around. It looks awful. And that's what the word says about bitterness in the life of a believer. It looks awful. It's contaminated. So get rid of it. You say, does it really say get rid of it? Well, I'm glad you asked because I have a scripture here that is very, 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 very uh, pointed, okay? It's in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. It's not the first time you've heard this this passage in verse uh, 31 and 32. Get rid of it. Of all moldy bread. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, I'm, I'm an expert at this. Not because I'm spiritual, but I had to do it to survive. I had to do it to survive being a good husband. I had to be a good husband. I had to. Because I can't get up here and preach if Debbie and I are at odds. I just can't do it. It's impossible. I, I'll tell you a little secret. I had to qu- stop a service, mid-service one time. Have I told you this story? 
it was about two or three minutes in, and I felt like death on cold toast because I had mistreated my wife verbally. Not, you know, I'm not a yeller and I'm not a screamer, and I dearly love my wife. I treasure her. I lift her up. She knows it. I know it. But somehow my smart mouth got me in trouble that Sunday. I don't know what it was. But I had to stop, I say, and I said, um, guys, uh, could everybody bow their heads right now? I've got to stop the service. And I did, and I said, there's a person here this morning that I really mistreated, and you know who you are. Would you look at me right now? And she looked at me, and I said, will you forgive me for how, whatever, I can't remember. I, I was probably abrupt and impatient. I know that's hard to believe that I was impatient. But, uh, and I said, will you forgive me? And of course, you know Debbie. Yeah, she said, of course. She, well, she didn't say it, but she said, yeah, because she's, she's an angel. But um, you got to get rid of it, and you got to get rid of it now. Okay? You know, various studies have found that unforgiveness can affect everything, our health, they attribute uh, some headaches, back pain, insomnia, and heart problems with bitterness. Over one researcher interviewed over 1,400 American adults, asking them to rate how highly they, likely rather, they were to forgive others hurting, for hurting them. And the participants also answered questions about how well they slept and, uh, and how they rated their health and they were, how satisfied were, they were with their life. The results suggested those who forgave others did a lot better than those who haven't. So pursue it. Pursue it. Make the choice to forgive. Just get alone. Ask the Holy Spirit. Take a This is what I did. It took me three days in eastern Washington alone. But I did it. It, it won't take you that long. But I did it. Write down what the Holy, Holy Spirit tell me who I need to forgive from the, your earliest memory to the moment you're writing this. What for? How it made me feel. And then before the Lord, you don't have to go to them, say, Father, I forgive so-and-so for such-and-such. I forgive John Doe for uh, lying to me or hurting me. And it made me feel awful, and it still does. And I renounce that anger that I have in your presence. And you'll find when you do that, now it has to be specific don't give me none of that. I forgive everybody. You know, specific, by name, by offense, feeling the feelings that it makes you feel before God, renouncing that anger. And here's what you'll find. Like a bell that used to ring in the town square. Because it'll come back, right? Like a wave. And you kind of have to repeat it. But like a bell ringing in the town square. The fur, it's been ringing in your ears. But it gets quieter and quieter and quieter and quieter. And I'll tell you what, right now, I can fellowship and love those people that hurt me without any problem. From hate and anger, hostility, it can happen. Um, I wouldn't go to their birthday party. You know, it's not like I'm going to go travel with them. I don't trust them as far as I could throw them. I'm not going to let them, or some of them are gone, to, to be with the Lord. But I wouldn't, uh, um, they're not going to be my best friends. And I'm not going to allow people to victimize me. Forgiveness is not victimization. But let God, let the Holy Spirit, some of you are thinking of people that hurt you. Go through this. You'll find it works. I'm telling you. And if you want to get to the end of your Christian life bearing any fruit at all, you got to do this. Okay? Because, you know, it says, in your anger, do not sin, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath, and do not give the devil a foothold. How can we function well by giving the devil a foothold? We can't. Okay, I've got two more. Two more. To continue to run the race of the Christian life well. Does it, was that four so far? Four, okay. Then see to it that no one is sexually immoral. See to it that no one is sexual, sexually immoral. And uh, let me go back to Hebrews. In verse uh, 16. See to no one that's, uh, see that no one is sexually immoral. 
That word in the Greek word is pornos. Where do we get our word for that? Pornography. Pornography. Or where does pornography get that word from? It's the Greek word pornos. And it means any kind of sinful sexual activity, any kind, outside the marriage bond. Whether it's visual or mental or physical, get rid of sexual immorality. Boy, I'll tell you what, that's hard in the world we live in today. I'm glad I'm not 14. I am so glad that I grew up when I grew up. It was bad enough, wasn't it? It's hard enough growing up in the 90s like I did as a young man. (laughs) All right, the 60s, 50s and 60s. You notice lying is not on that list, okay? (laughs) But it means any kind of sinful sexual activity. I don't want to get lurid here. You know, I don't want to get lurid. You know, I could kill you right now with statistics on pornography and on uh, websites and the vast array and the billions of, of dollars spent to seduce our youngsters all the way up to their, to the death, to death. It's, it's heartbreaking. And I'll tell you what else is heartbreaking is how many of my comrades in arms in the pastorate are falling in this area. It, it hurts. It's like getting a punch in my stomach every time I read one. And you read them, 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 and you go, this is a plague. Because pastoring, and I'm an interim pastor here right now, but I pastored full-time 24-7 for almost 30 years. I get it. You're under pressure. You're under stress. You're under opposition. You are getting pounded, and you just want to have a buzz of pleasure. And the devil says, well, you know, that's easy. And that could be drinking. It could be sexual immorality. It could be dozens of things. And that's one thing, wives, pray for your husbands. Pray for your sons. Pray for them. My, my dear godly wife prays for me all the time. I can tell. Say, so you've been praying for me today about this stuff? She goes, oh, yeah. I can tell. You guys tracking with me? We can't, we can't get to the end filled with immorality. And God kindly wants to help us quit that kind of stuff if we want to. If you're struggling with pornography or any other kind of immorality, God wants you to and will give you what you need to stop. Start by asking him. He already knows what's going on, by the way. We're not surprising him. Oh, God, I've been mentally fantasizing or I've been on the the computer or I've, I've looked at something or been somewhere. He knows and he loves you, and he wants to get you out of that. But you got to start by saying, God, help me, because I'm stuck. I'm stuck. And it's women as well as men at times. But see to it that you get just, just uh, what does he say here, that, that no one is sexually immoral, nobody. And I've been talking about pastors, but it could be anybody in the church. Listen to what Ephesians 5 says, and then I will go to our last one, and we'll, and we'll be done. Ephesians chapter 5. Notice what it says there. Verse 3. But among you, there must, must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. And it keeps us from getting there continually. Okay, last one here. Last one. Um, see to it that no one is godless like Esau. Last part of verse 16. I'm going to read the whole 16 and 17, and we'll be done. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sawed the blessing with tears. Okay? How was he godless, by the way, Esau? Well, he... You're going to think this sounds too simple, but he had no regard for God. That's how he was godless. 
He was totally focused on the, this world. Totally. Earthbound. He, he was a success, according to the world, but he wasn't devoted to God. So he failed where it mattered most. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be a tragedy to be successful at everything and be a failure? You know? I see people with lots of money. I mean, when I say lots of money, I mean lots of money, and they think they're really something special. They're not. One more breath, they're dead. It's, it's over. Okay? But they lived by their senses, and so did Esau, not by spiritual commitment. Instant gratification. That's why he went in and said, I'm hungry, give me that bowl of stew. Forget about the blessing, the inheritance. Let me eat stew. I want what I want now. And he did. And even though later he wanted it back, he wanted that blessing back with tears, he was rejected because he really wasn't truly repenting. He, was just, he just re regretted what happened. He didn't sincerely repent. Who else did that in the New Testament? He looked like he was sorrowful, but he never really repented. Judas Iscariot, he regretted, but he didn't repent. He cried, but he didn't, he, he really wanted what he wanted, okay? He wanted the zealots to take over Rome instead of the Jews, okay? Anyway, that's another story. Um, we are to see that none of us are like this. We need to examine our own hearts and be vigilant about loving God and not being worldly-minded, okay? I think Esau also, just to close, Esau is a sobering picture of those people who know the truth. He got it from his daddy, but he didn't want to surrender his life to God, Christ, until it was too late. And there are people that are like Esau in the church and outside the church, Okay? They're worldly-minded. They've never received Christ. And when it's too late, and when there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, see, weeping didn't just take place with Esau. It takes place after the judgment. Because Jesus tells us there will be, on that day there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth because these people heard the gospel, but they just paid attention to the world, and they never repented of their sin and accepted Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives. So we need, in two ways, not to be worldly-minded as Christians, but if we're not Christians, not to exchange salvation for the world, because we'll regret it with tears. Okay, let's apply this, and we'll get on to our Lord's, the Lord's Supper. The way to continue to, to, to run, to finish the Christian race to the end of our lives well is to daily apply these six ways to ourselves, and if we see someone else in the church, to help them do it too, humbly. Number one, make every effort to make peace with all men. Make every effort to be holy, for without holiness no one will see the Lord. To not miss the grace of God. To not let a bitter root go up, grow up. See to it that no one is sexually immoral. And see to it that no one is godless like Esau. Father, we uh, thank you for this, these verses being wedged between other topics to remind us of what we as believers by the power of the Holy Spirit need to do and keep doing continually to finish well, to arrive well to our eternal destination. Help anyone here who has been touched by any of these to repent and um, put, make that a part of their lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, as we take the Lord's Supper before we're off and running here today, I was thinking, wow, what can I, how, how can I use, what, what can I use, rather, uh, as, as something to maybe bring a different perspective on the Lord's Supper? And I don't know if it's the Lord or just, I probably was the Lord, but I think he wanted to talk to you about my glasses. How many people here wear glasses? Oh, well, I'd say about half, and the other half won't admit it because they just are embarrassed by that. <laughs> How many people aren't wearing them here, but they wear them at home to read or... Yeah. I have a love-hate relationship with my glasses. I really do. I'll, I'll share my hate for them and then my love for them. I hate glasses because they're easy to lose. Yeah. They have... 
like an alarm on them, and you can press the channel changer for, or something or your phone, and they beep, beep. There's my glasses. I've gone around the house like this. I said, Deb, have you seen my glasses? Uh, look on top of your head. Oh. Has anybody done that besides me? Yes! Uh, and you know, glasses get more expensive every year. Yeah, thank goodness we have insurance, but still, it's kind of sticker shock. And then I don't like glasses because they remind me I'm getting older because I have to get new ones. New glasses, older eyes, you know. Don't like that. But what I hate about my glasses the most is they always quickly, almost instantaneously get dirty. It seems like every time I put them down, I pick them back up to read, and it's smeary, smarmy, kind of, you know, dusty, whatever, and I can't see as well. And so I have to clean them. Okay, but here's why I love my glasses. Because when they're clean, I can read better, I can drive at night better, I can see distance better, and I love that. Because without these glasses, I can't even read the Bible right, the, the Word of God right now. I can't hurt. We were out to dinner the other night, Deb and I, and I couldn't read the menu until I did this. So I love glasses for that reason. And I want to use the Lord's Supper for this. Taking the Lord's Supper is like cleaning a smudged, dirty, greasy pair of glasses. It really is. Once again, it enables us to see clearly what Christianity is all about. And maybe between times of taking communion, we sort of forget, and our vision is impaired, and it, it, we can't see it quite as clearly as we want to or should. And so when we put on the nice, clear, clean glasses of the Lord's Supper, we can see again what the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for our sins is all about. And we can be reminded, okay, to, to, to clearly remember what Jesus did for us, to see it with new eyes, fresh and express our gratitude to him. Let me read the communion passage that we'll use today for that. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 25. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That is what Christianity is. Let's think, think about the bread. This is my body, Christ incarnate, coming to earth, God in human flesh to bear our sins on the cross so that his, God's wrath was steered upon Christ instead of us. And when we were saved, he applied Christ's righteousness to us. Jesus said, remember that. That's Christianity. This is my body. Take the bread, please. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus had the cup. He took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. We're not in an old covenant to offer sacrifice over and over for our sins. We're in a new covenant. Christ's one sacrifice, Hebrews tells us, by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. We're perfect in the eyes of God through the shed blood of Christ applied to our sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. <sighs> Praise the Lord. Let's stand together as we, as we close today. Our God and Father, thank you for helping us to continue to run the race well. We are a subculture now. We are swimming upstream. The world is 
going over a hill. It's moving downwards so fast. It makes our head spin, really. And the devil is on the warpath. But Lord, we're going the other way. We're going to go the other way. We're going to continue in these six things until we hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thank you for the reminder and for the challenge. Help us to follow these with a vengeance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you.